We're, we're in Jonah 2 this morning, and uh, I know that for some of you, the idea that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days seems like a crazy fish story, and it is a crazy story. It's nutty, okay? And I know that some of you would say, well, is that really possible? Did this really happen? And let me kind of help you think through it the way I think through it. When you look at the Bible, there are so many miracles. We've got the 10 plagues against Egypt. You've got the parting of the Red Sea. You have Elijah uh, raises a, a widow's son to life. You have, uh, in the New Testament, you have Jesus raising the, the, the widow of Nain's uh, son. You, you have the, the resurrection of Lazarus. You have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So frankly, uh, and, uh, you know, when you see all the miracles that God has done, including the creation of the world, by the way, right? It seems like having a, a man inside a fish for three days it doesn't seem that crazy. It doesn't seem that difficult for God to do. Certainly he could do it. So there's no reason not to think that this could have happened, surely. And of course, the interesting thing about Jonah is, is if he wrote the book himself or if he told someone else about his experiences, it also gives credence to the idea that the, that the story is just as it happened. I mean, why would a prophet of God tell somebody this horrible story where he almost gets nothing right for four chapters? So it almost sort of leaves credence to the, the fact that the reason we're reading this story is it probably did actually happen. And of course, Jesus himself refers to the sign of Jonah as, as, as sort of a, of a sign, a picture of his death, uh, death and, and the fact that he would be in the grave for three days. So I kind of think it's real. I do. But I know some of you are still worried about that. And of course, I grew up in a family where um, fish was not the greatest thing. I can't, I can't tell you how many times my mom embarrassed me as a young boy. We would go to a fish restaurant and my mom would literally ask this question. She would say, does this fish taste fishy? She hated fish. So whether you, uh, so what I want to say to those of you who still struggle with the idea of a man inside a fish, and some of you just may be nauseous just thinking about that picture, you can leave that question aside for now. We certainly will get a chance to talk to Jonah. I think he probably was in the fish, and I'd like to hear more about that from him. But if you do have questions about the fish story, so to speak, I would encourage you to set those aside as an unanswered question. Because I don't want you to miss the reality of what Jonah is talking about in Jonah 2. Because what Jonah is talking about in, in, in Jonah 2 is something that is true for all of us. What Jonah is going to confront us with as he prays in the belly of this fish is he's going to confront all of us. Whether you're, whether you're home in your living room right now or whether you're here this morning, he's going to confront us with our tendency to worship something other than God, to put an idol in our life, some other person, some other pursuit, some other thing that rivals uh, for, for our affections. And it's absolutely crucial we come face to face with this reality. And so this morning, I want us to do two things, right? Two, very simple. Number one, I want us to see from Jonah how idolatry operates in your life and in mine. I want you to see how idolatry works. I want you to see what it is. I want you to see the pattern of idolatry. I'm going to illustrate that for you. So that hopefully by God, through his Holy Spirit, you see the idolatry that clings to your heart and your soul. Then secondly, 
I want to see through the prayer of Jonah, we are going to see how to break idolatry, how to smash these idols that tend to grip our hearts and to refocus our affections, our love, our hope, our joy, our identity in God plus nothing else. So two things, see the idolatry. Number two, how to break the idolatry. Let's see the idolatry. Uh, Let's take a look at... uh, critical verses here, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. This is Jonah speaking. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And this is a key verse right here. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The crucial verse here that I want us to focus on first to see how idolatry operates in our life is verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What Jonah is acknowledging in in, in the fish as he prays is he's acknowledging that when we, any of us, pursue an idol, something other than God that grips our hearts, that tends to replace God in our lives, we begin to forsake the grace that could be ours. And the reason that happens is because all idolatry is about performing. All idolatry is about earning or deserving some end goal, some result. And yet the God... God of the Bible, the true God, does not operate by performance. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't tell us you must earn salvation. He's a God of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. And he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is his mercy. God operates completely different than idolatry. So let me describe idolatry a little bit for us. All throughout the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, it says, don't have any other gods before me. What idolatry is, is when anything or anyone or anything else is now in the place where God should be functionally in your life. Anything that, where you're trying to get hope and joy and peace and security and an identity that's not about God alone, you've fallen into idolatry. In the Old Testament, it talks about images where people would bow down before an image, but it also talks about idols of the heart in Ezekiel. It's not just a statue that you bow down to. You can create your own idol, your own mental and heart idolatry, where something other than God has your focus, where you hope and you, and you dream and, you, and, and your peace and your security and your joy is wrapped up in something other than God. That's idolatry. There's another interesting way this often happens to us is sometimes in idolatry, we are still worshiping God in one sense, but but we're basically saying God is great. That's wonderful. I came to church. I I worshiped God, but I need something plus God, God plus something else to give me joy, peace, satisfaction, and identity. And in a real, real twist in our human hearts is that sometimes we are demanding that God makes our idolatry work. And when God doesn't make our idolatry work, this God plus something, whatever that is, and God doesn't give us the something, we blame God because he won't make our idols work. Idolatry is real. It's, it, 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 it's, it's powerful. It's, it's, it's a danger spiritually for all of us. 
What is interesting in the New Testament, it does mention idols at the end of 1 John 5. tells little children, beware of idols and put away your idols. But a lot of times what the, the New Testament talks about idolatry, it talks about it in terms of desire. Idolatry starts with desires that become too strong, desires that begin to rival your desire for God. And when those desires go too strong, you begin to fall into idolatry. So that's a description of idolatry. I want to give you a pattern for how idolatry works in your heart. This comes out of James 4. In James 4, uh, James writes these words. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your desires are at war within you? Okay. So idolatry starts with desires. You have a desire. That desire may not be evil. It actually may be a good desire. But if that desire becomes too strong, if that desire begins to crowd out your desire for God plus nothing, the desire becomes a demand. Notice it says in James, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you want something, you cannot obtain it, you fight and quarrel. What happens is your good desire, possibly, has now become a demand. So it's I desire, now I demand. I must have this thing. And then, of course, if I don't get this thing, because now it's a demand, not simply a desire, I get angry. I fight and quarrel with you. I get angry. I get frustrated. What happens next? I judge. What happens in idolatry, if we put anything other than God as the supreme focus of our life, and we don't get that desire... That demand, then, we get angry and we begin to judge. And who do we judge? Anybody who keeps us from getting the idol that we want. We judge each other. We judge ourselves. And in some cases, we even judge God because he didn't get and make our idol work. And lastly, we punish. So if we, if we don't get what we want, if we don't get this desire that has now become a demand, we begin to judge all the people around us who are keeping us from getting this desire. We then turn around and punish everyone around us because we have not been able to get and perform and earn and deserve this idol that has now replaced God as the focus of our life. And we, we, we punish people. Now, let me illustrate this in a couple of different ways so maybe you can see yourself in this. When I came to Princeton in 1989, I knew Princeton Princeton University was a very academic city. I knew Princeton University was Ivy League, all right? But I grew up in a different world, okay? In Miami, Florida, none of my friends were thinking about going to Ivy League schools, okay? So I came here, I was a little bit unprepared. My first year as the youth pastor here, I had a, a student come in, he was a senior, And it was about April, and he had just gotten all of his acceptance and rejection letters from college. And so he sits down in my office, and he is completely unglued. This is a a follower of Jesus, by the way. And what he's saying is he didn't get into Princeton, and he didn't get into his other Ivy League schools that he thought he would get into. And the only school that he got into that he wasn't completely embarrassed, he got into Duke University. Now, I... I'll be honest with you. I guess I'm from Texas. I'm thinking, Duke, that's a university, isn't it? Last time I checked, they've got a library. They grant degrees, right? They've got a good basketball team, too. I thought, you know, what's wrong with Duke? For this student, it was the end of his life. This student had wanted 
and had lived his life, yes, for Jesus partially. But what had happened to him, his desire to get into his favorite school, an Ivy League school, has become a demand. I must get into those schools. And he didn't get in. So what does he do? He judged. Oh, he was mad. He was mad at himself. He castigated himself for about 20 minutes. I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have taken an extra class. Oh, I got, I got an A minus in that class. Maybe that was the end of it. I should have studied for the SAT more. He's judging himself. He was frustrated himself. He was frustrated at the people who had helped him get his application to college. Well, he judged everybody that he thought kept him from getting into the school. He was punishing himself. He basically looked at me. Again, this is a follower of Jesus Christ and said, my life is over. I'm 18 and I'm on my way to Duke. I'm done. Now that's idolatry. That's the pattern of idolatry. I desire something, nothing wrong with that. But now I demand it. Well, now you got a problem. And then I judge and then I punish if that idol is not, does, does it make my white life? I can't achieve what that idol is telling me it needs to achieve. Well, high school students aren't the only ones who fall into idolatry. How about parents? Christian parents, big time idolaters, right? It's not a bad desire to say, I want my kid to grow up and be a, a responsible adult. I want my kid to grow up and follow Jesus. Those are good desires. It would be a weird desire, parents, if you said, I really hope my kid lives with me when, I'm, you know, when, I'm fi- when he's 50, okay? That's weird. It, that's not a bad desire to want your child to go up and, and be, be, be a godly young man or young woman. That, that's great. But what happens to a parent when that desire is now a demand? I've got to have my kids grow up. I've got to have my kids be responsible. I've got to have my kids move forward. I've got to have my kids embrace Jesus. And boy, when you get there, parents, and you, that must happen. You can't be content. You can't be, be at peace. You can't have joy if that's not happening or something's threatening that. And then what happens? Well, you judge. Oh, boy, I've, I've counseled many families like this where mom and dad, Christian parents, are so frustrated with their kids because their kids are making unwise choices and the parents are judging their kid. They're doing everything in their power to externally manipulate their child to do what they want. And everybody gets punished in that arrangement. That's idolatry. You can have idolatry in your career. I told you, facsimile of this story before. I used to, I was a pastor for 17 and a half years after seminary. In fact, when I was seven years old, I thought I was supposed to be a pastor, right? And then I stupidly decided to do that eventually. No. I've often joked with my dad. He was working at IBM before he became a pastor, and my, my, my inheritance would look a lot different if he had stayed at IBM. Anyway, I, I'm okay. I'm over that, sort of. But 17 and a half years of ministry, I took a year off of ministry and I was working at Chick-fil-A. And there's probably two idolatries in my heart at that time. Being a pastor was a real big part of my identity. In fact, I thought I was supposed to be a pastor since the time I was seven. But now I'm not a pastor. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manager at Chick-fil-A. But there's another part of my idolatry is I want to be competent in what I do. 
I want to do the thing right. But when I was a manager at Chick-fil-A, particularly initially, I was incompetent. I didn't know how to make iced tea. I didn't know how to make diet lemonade. I remember the first day of my job, I was supposed to butter the buns and put chicken on them. I couldn't keep up. I was like Lucille Ball at the Candid Factory. I just, I just doing this for two hours, always behind. I felt completely incompetent. And one night, the first two weeks I was there, I was imitating, after I had mopped the floor, and I actually did a pretty good job on that floor that night. I was imitating uh, Olympic ice skating, okay? Just being funny, trying to be funny, right before my shift was over, 10 o'clock at night. And I was doing this, and I was, you know, just going around, and I slipped on the mop floor, and I fell down, and because the my, the floor was so slip, I, slippery, I couldn't get up. I looked like a hog in the slop, you know, just trying to get up. And I remember got up, my shift was over, I said goodbye. And as I was leaving the store, this 16-year-old girl who worked at Chick-fil-A, I could hear what she said. She goes, you know what, that, that, that Mr. Troxel, he is a, he's a really nice man, but he's a real dork. And I walked out. I got to my car and I put my head on the steering wheel and I wept. I wasn't a pastor anymore and I was very incompetent and I couldn't deal with that. That's idolatry. I couldn't have joy. I couldn't have contentment. I couldn't have peace. I couldn't have security. I couldn't have an identity apart from my work and apart from my competence. That is idolatry all the way through. And the question for us, as you look at the text here, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What happens in idolatry is we move away from God, something else is taking God's place, and whatever that is, that entity is not going to operate with you by grace and mercy. It's going to operate with you based on performance. You better perform to get into the right school. You better perform so that your kids will grow up and do the things you want them to do. You better perform or your career is going to stall out. And when you get into the performance orientation, you lose sight by definition of God's grace and mercy. And now you are spiritually in trouble. Because idolatry goes from a desire to a demand to you judge and to you punish. It always leads to destruction because performance orientation will not and cannot work. The other crazy thing about idolatry is that we are depending on other entities to give us an identity that can't do that consistently. If you're the parent of three or four teenagers and you are looking to those teenagers to build your identity around because they're making progress, you're crazy and idolatrous. It's unstable. If you look to your career for, to validate you and to give you hope and joy and satisfaction, ultimately, no career can provide that kind of security. None. And yet we do that. And when we do that, we forsake the grace Sake the hope of steadfast love. That's idolatry. One thing before we move forward on that, I, I want to sort of ask you a couple of questions. They're, they're on, some of these are on the website, part of the questions for discussing this text. But how do you tell what your idol is? Let me give you a couple of questions. If you could answer this question, 
if only X could happen, if only this could happen, my life would be better. That's probably an idol. Another way to ask yourself, what gives you great joy? Or what would give you great joy if this, whatever it would happen? That's probably an indication of an idol. Another thing to ask yourself is, what makes you angry? What gets you upset? What do you worry about? Probably an idol. A lot of times, idols are things we're trying to control. So if you've got some control issues with some anxiety, indication that you've fallen into idolatry. That's idolatry. That's how it works. So how do you get out of this? How do you deal with this? Well, Jonas is going to give us two ways to get out of this. But he's going to, these two ways are not independent of one another. You have to follow both of the ways at the same time to break the idolatry in your life. Let's go back to Jonah 2 verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. In other words, Jonah is starting to realize because God has put them in in this very uncomfortable place, thrown off the boat, that he now realizes he's helpless and hopeless. He has no way to save himself. This is part of the first thing that you have to get a hold of if you're going to break idolatry. You have to get your head around and your heart around the idea that your sin is vast and your sin is something that you can't fully deal with on your own. Jonah's admitting, the flood surrounded me. Verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah is recognizing that his rebellion and not going to Nineveh and preaching to Nineveh, he realizes he's, he's away from the Lord. He realizes, I think, a little bit his self-righteousness, which caused him not to want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid God would show mercy to those people that he thought were beyond God's mercy. And in his self-righteousness of thinking, he was right with God through his performance. And Israel was right because of their performance. He begins to see that he is, his sin has driven him from the, the sight of God. Verse 5, the waters closed in over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is recognizing how vast his sin is, how great his sin is, and he's realizing that this is his main problem and that this sin has driven him from the presence of the Lord and he is helpless and hopeless on his own to deal with that sin. And of course, I think we, in the context of this text, where we're talking about idolatry, I think it's important to realize that when we sin, and even if you never trusted Christ, it's not your sin. We view our sin, I think, superficially. We view sin, a lot of times, we broke a couple of God's laws. We got a couple of speeding tickets. We paid them off, and now we're okay. Sin is much deeper than that. When we sin, it's not simply that we broke a few laws. The reason we broke a few laws is because we have taken God in our hearts who should be the supreme object of our affection because he's great, powerful, the most amazing entity of all time. We've taken him and substituted him with something else. 
And now we are serving that entity, that pursuit, that thing. We've taken God off the throne. We've set up idolatry in our own hearts. And so that breaking God's law is not simply breaking a few rules. We've taken God off the throne and it's set up something else. And we're pursuing a different God, a, a different God who is the functional God of our life. And that's why it makes our sin so deep, so profound, so disturbing, and so dangerous. Do you see that about yourself? Do you see your sin in that context? And that's the first thing to break the idol, but you have to see why you see your sin and all of its ugliness and all of its idolatrous nature and all of the, the, the ways in which you've taken God off the throne and set something else other than God. Probably a God of your own making, of course. But there's a second thing we need to see at the same time as we see our sin, we have to see the grace of God in its vastness as well. Notice in verse four, he said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What Jonah is thinking about in the belly of the fish, as he contemplates his own sin and idolatry, he's looking to the temple. He's thinking about the temple. Well, what's going on in the temple? Well, the temple is where, where God would atone for our sins through sacrifice. It was in the temple. Yes, God was everywhere at this time, but in this particular point in redemption history in, in Israel, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in a very special way. And that, in that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. In that box with the cherubim on top of them, in that box was the law of God. There was the Ten Commandments. And what happened once a year is the high priest would come in and sprinkle blood, a sacrifice on the mercy seat there, on top of the law, so to speak. A blood sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that was the basis of how the nation could, be, could, could have their sins atoned for. Not through their efforts, but through the sacrifice, the substitute. And of course, everything in the temple was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Everything was pointing forward to when Jesus Christ died on the cross once for all. He didn't have to keep coming every year like they did back in the Old Testament, back in the temple. He came, and because he was a perfect man, he could die for our sins. But because he was God, he could die for all of the sins of those that God would call to him. And in the temple, and as we look at this, as we see Jesus Christ, we have to see the vastness of God's love for us, the vastness of his mercy. Our sin, however great and however idolatrous, is not big enough to overcome the grace and mercy of God. And here's the rub for us, I think. I think some of us in this room and some of those of you who are at home in your living room, you have a tendency to minimize your sin. You think of it as, oh, I broke a few laws. No, you committed idolatry. You took God off the throne. Your sin is serious. It's destructive. It's dangerous. But if you don't see the weight of your sin, you can never see the beauty of God's love and mercy. If you minimize the sin, you minimize the grace. Others of you, look, you see your sin. You see it. It's monstrous, you think. You made serious errors. But you're not able to see the beauty and vastness of God's love. God's grace is bigger than your worst sin. You have to see both of these realities at the same time in order to break the hold that idolatry has on us. Remember when I 
was getting ready to propose to my wife just a few years ago. I went up to the same jeweler where my dad got a ring for, for my mom. I think I was hoping he would give me a real discount. And I, I was in seminary at the time. I made no money, but I wanted to buy the biggest possible diamond I could find that I could afford. And I remember they took that sort of black velvety uh, you know, material and they brought out the diamonds and I looked at each of them. I was looking at them and and this one came that was in the shape that I thought Denise would really like. And I looked at it on, on that background. And I, it, to me, it looked like the Hope Diamond. It was huge. Ten carats. Right? So I bought that, scraped together all the money I had to buy that ring. I took it with me to her hometown in Louisiana. I was going to propose to her. But before I proposed to her, we had to go to a family wedding. And it was her niece, one of her nieces had, was getting married. And after the wedding, I, I went to look at, uh, at, 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 at her ring that she got that day at the wedding. And um, her husband was a dentist, not a starving seminary student. And I, when I looked at her ring, I, I mean, it, it, the, the diamond ring on her finger looked like five to 20 times bigger than the ring I had for Denise. And I had the ring with me, so I actually went to the restroom of the church where we were in, and I looked at the ring, and I went, oh, my, it's, it's, oh, my, it's, oh, it's so small. I don't think I can propose to her. What was the problem? The ring, the diamond on the ring was not the diamond that I saw on the dark background. On a dark background, even small diamonds look like the Hope Diamond. Why? Because they're in the background of the dark black cloth. And you're never going to see the grace of God. You will never see the vastness of the grace of God unless you see the ugliness and the darkness of your own heart, your own idolatrous heart, and all the ways in which you pull God off the throne. Unless you see the, the ugliness of that, the grace of God will never appear that big for you. And it won't be big enough to break your idolatry. And so that's the task for us. If we want to break idolatry, we've got to see the ugliness and idolatrousness of our own hearts. And we need to see it. We need to feel it. But at the same time, we have to see the vastness of God's grace that's bigger than our sin. And when we do that, when we keep those two realities front and center in our mind, it begins to break the idolatry of our heart. Because when we realize we have a God who loves us this much, when we have a God who sacrificed everything for us, when we have a God who did this for us and who loves us and cares for us, how can I try to find joy in any other being than him? How can I try to find any other peace or security in anyone but him? How can I build an identity on anything but him having been loved like that? Let me close with this story. There was a ballet dancer, I think in New York. She's a Christian following Christ. She's a ballet dancer. And her dancing was really a major part of her life. And she got injured. Uh, so she still was with the company she was with, but she had to come and sit in a folding chair because of her injury and basically teach the, the, the other dancers, but she couldn't perform and she couldn't practice. 
And in that state of mind, as as a as a as a, as a, as a ballet dancer, she she began to feel that her whole life was washed up. I can't do the very thing I love. I can't do the very thing I was made to do. She reached out to one of her pastors and said, um, you know, and explained the, the problem she was having, the feeling of lack of joy, the lack of purpose in her life because she's, she's stuck in a folding chair while the dancing goes on. And the pastor wisely said, well, maybe it's time for you to figure out who you are in a folding chair. She began to think about that. She began to ponder that. And here's what she writes. She goes, looking back on my time as a dancer, I see a paradigm of perspective unique to being a follower of Jesus. I most glorified God not on my best dancing day or while performing on stage to a packed theater, but instead I glorified him most while I sat in the folding chair. I sat there without any of my shiny adornments of my physical abilities or career accomplishments that I thought proved my worth to myself or to the world. Sitting alone in that chair, unable to dance, I was still a woman known by, to God, created in the image of God for the glory of God. That is what gives me inherent worth, a far greater eternal value than what I could ever do in pointed shoes. All I had to offer was who Jesus made me to be, and it had nothing to do with my own abilities. She goes on to talk about COVID-19. She wasn't able to continue her ballet career. She ended up becoming a nurse. And here's what she writes about COVID-19. The global crisis is forcing us to see what we have left to hold on to. We see what, that what has meaning in our lives as careers are put on pause. Social circles are disbanded. Usual conveniences and literally and figuratively are out of stock. The space that has been cleared now gives us the clarity to see what is left when everything around us is canceled, postponed, delayed, or simply gone. God is showing us the things we falsely relied upon for so long. We cannot continue to do so as we have done before. When we are met with the fragility of earthly things of which we once were so sure of, we feel our vulnerability. We can see how easily distracted we have become from things of eternal value. For those of you who are at home, in your living room, for those of you here, I can assure you, you are struggling with some form of idolatry this very morning. You need to identify it. You need to see it for all of it is. To see how you have replaced God and now you've, you're pursuing something that you think can give you joy, peace, hope, identity. And you repent. And in your repentance, you need to grab onto the reality of your sin and idolatry, which is vast, but the reality of God's grace, which was way bigger. And when you see that you have a God who loves you like that, a God who doesn't ask you to perform to earn anything, but simply gives this out of his mercy and grace, that's a person, that's an entity, that's a God who will give you joy plus nothing else. That's a God who can give you peace even if everything else in your life is, is running amok. That's a God who gives you an identity that is sure, true, and stable. May God deal with the idolatries of our heart and pull us back to the God of grace who is bigger than all our sin. Let's pray together.
Your Father in heaven, speak to us. Show us our idolatries. Show us how to deal with our idolatry through looking at our sin and seeing it completely, but also seeing more completely and consistently the vast grace of God that has been poured out to us. Help us to get off the performance trap of our idolatry that always leads us to demand that some, something else happens and then we judge and then we punish. Lord, help us to rest in the sureness and greatness of your great grace. Pray this in Jesus' name.